All right, we're going to talk about neurologic emergencies. Like I said, there it isn't all inclusive, but for the most part, in emergency medical services, when you're talking about neurologic emergencies, you're talking about cerebrovascular accidents, also known as strokes. And you're talking about seizures. Who can remember that Roman guy that I already mentioned? No, that ain't him. Caesar, shit. Caesar. See what I did? Yeah, but hey, but listen, but listen, I'm going to turn that into a teachable moment. Caesar actually had really bad seizures. That's a historical fact. That and, and he was also the first one in recorded history to be cut out of his mother's womb. Caesarean section. That's where the name comes from. <laughs> Man, we we dropping knowledge. Anyhow, alright, so I was talking about status epilecticus. That's, that's the Roman guy that I had already mentioned to you guys. But we'll uh, We'll press on. We're going to talk about that and that. All right. In 2003, three of the top 15 causes of death in the United States were neurologic. Causes of death are pretty much dictated by the age of the patient, right? The younger you are, what's one of the leading causes of death? Preventable accidents, right? Hey, watch this, right? That whole thing. But as you get older, um, we're looking at cancers, we're looking at obviously cardiovascular emergencies like last chapter. Strokes can cause death, and there's a, two major classifications of strokes or cerebrovascular accidents. Sometimes you'll just hear me say CVAs, but that's what I'm talking about, a stroke, okay? And then you have you know, cancer, brain tumors, neoplasms, what have you. And then, um, of course, disease processes like Alzheimer's and things like that. Um, I'm sure most of us in the room have at least been exposed to someone with Alzheimer's, either a family member or calls that we ran or whatever. Uh, that, that can get pretty sad sometimes. Uh, it can be kind of comical sometimes too, but it's not designed to be. Um, I used to run calls to a gentleman that whenever he would lose his, would break with, I guess, day-to-day -day reality, he was back in World War II fighting the Germans. So, well, again, that's not funny. I'm not a mean person, so don't think I'm thinking the old man was funny. But sometimes when he would snap back into reality, he'd look at you, his wife called him, he's out in the yard with me one day thinking he was hiding behind the truck from the Germans and his wife yelled at him from the front porch and I can't remember his name Tom get in this house and he looked at her and he looked at me and he said damn <laughs> and, walked, and walked back in the house so he come back into reality for that brief moment and that's not really what we're here to talk about but that's why it's comical sometimes did you laugh? I did <laughs> I did so, um, first line says revolutionary treatments are available for stroke. Who knows what type? What types of treatments do we have for stroke patients? And what's revolutionary about some of them? So, say it. 
You ain't got to tell me the name. Just gen in general, how do they, how do we treat strokes? That's a fact. That's a fact. You have two types of strokes. One of them are, is classified as an ischemic stroke, which about 80% of strokes are ischemic in nature. And y'all should write that down probably. About 80% of them are ischemic in nature. That means there's a clot that's blocking that vessel. And they do push medications for that. Uh, Altaplace, TPA, maybe you've heard that. That the medicine goes in and dissolves the clot. What's another way that they treat, um, again, even ischemic strokes, but maybe we're talking about larger vessels. Maybe we're talking about larger clots. What's another thing that they can do? They actually go into femoral artery, run a catheter up. Well, not here, that'd be a heart attack. Up to here, and they can literally grab the clot and pull it out. Why do they go so low down the body? Sir? Why, why your femoral artery? Like, why don't they just start? I don't have an answer. Uh, I don't know. I'll find out and let you know, but I don't know. Uh, Grady Hospital primarily or is where you're going to get that treatment done, but any comprehensive. You have specialty centers, right? Specialty type hospitals. And I don't want to get too far ahead of the slides, but. You have different classifications of stroke centers too. You have primary stroke care centers and you have comprehensive. The primary difference between that is the primary stroke care center can push that out to place, that TPA, that medicine, but if the clot's too large and it has to be pulled out or if they need to go in and perform actual surgery, that has to be performed at the comprehensive centers. Okay, and I'm gonna stop there because I don't get too far ahead of the slides. Another thing that they were talking about doing with strokes a few years ago, and I haven't heard much talk about it recently, but what's the problem? Whether it's a heart attack, whether it's a stroke or anything like that, what is the actual problem? Clogging up. Sir? Clogging up. It's clogging up. Therefore, you have tissues that are, that are not getting oxygen. They are ischemic, and if it's not corrected, they will infarct, right? They're going to die eventually. Well, so the signs and symptoms or the whole, I guess the signs and symptoms that they develop is going to be dictated by where that blockage is, right, and what's downstream and how large that vessel is. So they, at one point in time, the, the, I guess the treatment of the day or the, the revolutionary, if you will, idea that, that some of the neurologists had was throw them in hyperbaric chambers. What does a hyperbaric chamber do? It forces oxygen into them cells that were that they had lost or but now the cells that were dead or they were just dead, right? But the ones that were dysfunctioning, that would show some improvement for those. So anyhow, we'll talk more about strokes and the, the two types uh, here in a moment. Seizures and altered mental status, AMS. What's altered mental status? What does that mean? Say that again, Nick. It's altered, right? They have an altered ability to mentate. It could mean anything from their past that they're in a coma, right? Or maybe they're just slightly confused, asking repetitive questions. 
<clears throat> and those things, like if you're, you know, if you have a tumor that's growing in that cranial vault, that's just like, that's just like bleeding in the cranial vault or excess fluid in there, right? That pressure can only build up so much and it starts pushing in, right? As that tumor grows, you have the same um, signs and symptoms that might manifest. It is increased ICP, no matter what produces it, right? So, um, there you go. Seizures may occur as a result of a recent or old head injury. If you run a trauma patient, if you run a car wreck, and you, you pull up and you get out, and you see there's spider webbing of the windshield, and the, and the person sitting there having a seizure. Now, it's the chicken or the egg thing that we talk about sometimes. Did they wreck because they had a seizure, or did they have a seizure because they hit their head? Both are possible. And where are you going to get your answer nine times out of ten? Well, he or she's unconscious seizing. Yeah, but and I think you're both right, and I'm making the question more complicated than I need to. Your, your sample history, right? Do they have a seizure disorder or not? If they don't have seizures normally, they don't have epilepsy or something else, then the head injury probably caused the seizure. Your, your sample history or your patient history will clue you toward the, that acute traumatic event nine times out of ten. So it can be a head injury, it could be the brain tumor, a metabolic problem, genetic disposition. What if I tell you some people have uh, uh, idiocentric seizures? What does that mean? That means they don't have a clue why they have seizures. They're seizures of an unknown origin. They just have them. So, anyhow. Yeah. Yes, sir. With, the, uh, with that new thing that they passed in Georgia a few years ago, the Charlotte Web thing for the, the kids, where they're taking like, the THC and they're taking the THC out of like, the marijuana and giving these kids with the seizures, they're able to live a long life. Is that was something that they're able to give to uh, older patients as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't see why not, because uh, it, it's still the active ingredient of the THC is going to work on the seizure. I think probably the stories that you hear are usually centered around children, because I think that maybe tugs on heartstrings a little bit more to get laws changed or whatever. I, and I could be wrong. I'm certainly not the expert on it, but I, I don't think the age of the patient really matters. Okay. I, I didn't know if it was like because the brain was more developed, it was less susceptible to that. I don't think so. Okay. I think it just works. Okay. But again. And then is it also, is it certain types of seizures or is it all seizures? Don't know, buddy. Okay. All right. Altered mental status is a common presentation of a wide variety of medical problems, such as intoxication. Is that a medical problem? <laughs> Look, let me tell you something. Drunk folks get sick. Drunk folks get hurt. Or maybe they're just drunk. Well, you really know sometimes. 
go back to what I've told you from the beginning of the class. You can always explain why you did something, right? Explaining why you did nothing could get tricky. Just because they're drunk, don't deny them the treatment that they may need. Treat them. It's going to be aggravating, but you need to do it. Intoxication, a head injury, diabetic emergencies. How will a diabetic emergency change your uh, mental status? <clears throat> Wild and bizarre behavior, right? Have I told y'all the circle the wagons boys story yet? No? I don't think we, we haven't gotten to the endocrine uh, have I, I haven't told y'all that story all right. all right it's a funny one this is worth the price of admission tonight year of our lord 1996 I was working on the ambulance in South Fulton County and we got dispatched to a signal 41 which is a car wreck or was a car wreck back then I'm hopefully they've gotten away from the signals by now we got dispatched to a car wreck at the Wendy's on 138. And we pull up, and sure enough, there was a car went through the drive-thru. <laughs> <clears throat> well, we pull up, and I get out of the ambulance, and I see Union City Fire Department, and they're literally got this guy in a headlock rolling across the parking lot of the Wendy's. I told you it was a good story. And I say, Hey, I mean, there's, I mean, they're like grunting and drooling, fighting with him, trying to hold him down. And they look at him and they say, hey, this is Mr. Smith. I'm going to make up a name. This is Mr. Smith. He's normally a nice guy, but his sugar gets low. He's mean. <laughs> I said, yeah, I see. And he was trying to get a, a frosty because he knew his sugar was low, but he didn't make it. All right. So I said, well, look, won't you let Mr. Smith up? We can get him in the back of the ambulance and take care of him and, and uh, it, was, it was a little bit cold, so my, the, my partner was wearing a jacket, but they let Mr. Smith up, and he reached around and bit my partner right in the back. <laughs> All right? So then my partner pulled away. I'll never forget his jacket pulling because Mr. Smith still had it in his teeth, and he's, like, growling at him and bit him in his back. My partner starts screaming, right? You taking this one? You taking this one? I ain't getting in the back with him. I was like, all right, all right, Dean, just calm down. I, I'll get in the back of the ambulance with him. So me, Dean, Union City Fire Department, wrestle Mr. Smith onto the stretcher, get him in the back of the ambulance and, you know, use some soft restraints, and I'm kind of restraining his arm because I know he's got to get some sugar because it is low. You can smell that acetone breath and everything. It's nasty. But anyhow, Senator tries to start an IV on him, and he's sitting there wiggling his arm on purpose and laughing at me. I said, Mr. Smith, just, just be still, partner. We're going get to you, get you the help you need. And he's laughing. And my partner in the front, he's still mad about getting bit because he's saying, <laughs> he's yelling at me. He's like, punch him in the head. He ain't going to remember. <laughs> punch him in the head. I said, Dean, I'm not going to punch this man in the head. Just hush. And I did not. But then I saw him out of the corner of my eye when I'm trying to start that IV. I see him getting it ready. And I grabbed the damn clipboard and I come up just as he spit all over me. And he said, and then he got it. No. <laughs> no. But then he, said, he started laughing. He said, I bet you won't help me now, don't you? And I said, 
something I should not have said <laughs> but I said pretty much you just ride to the hospital buddy we'll be there in a minute something real close to that <laughs> because it stunk it just anyhow so but I I'm thinking you might spit on the kid once <laughs> two times ain't coming that easy I reach in the cabinet grab a sheet right across this fish mouth behind the stretcher and tied off which I do not advocate y'all doing in any fashion so he's gagged he ain't spitting on me again we roll into South Fulton ER and the doctor in there his, his was Dr. Weed W-E-E-D and Dr. Weed would partake I know because him and my partner at the time had done it before Anyhow, we rolled him into the ER and Dr. Weed said, who gagged this man like this? I said, that'd be me, Doc. He spit on me. Well, going to do it twice. He said, you untie him right now. And I'm calling David Cannon. That was my boss at the time. I said, no, sir, I'm not taking that off. If you want to call David Cannon, you feel free to call him. I understand. He said, I don't need somebody with a camera in here recording this in my ER. And he unties it and pulls the gag off of it. Mr. Smith and Mr. Smith screams out, circle the wagons, boys, and spit on Dr. Weed. And spit on Dr. Weed. So he tied it right back on here. Dr. Weed said, gag that son of a bitch. <laughs> and walked off. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. Anyhow, even though this is not a diabetic emergencies lecture, I was in the right frame of mind to tell it. So there you go. So, intoxication, head injuries, diabetic emergency, strokes, uh, of course the treatments are going to vary widely based on what the condition is. So, but the end result is some sort of altered mental state. Right. Anatomy and physiology, here we go with that. The nervous system is the most complex organ system in the human body. The brain and spinal cord makes up what? Central nervous system. Thousand of other nerves make up the what? Peripheral nervous system. And what are the subcategories of the peripheral nervous system that we know? Autonomic nervous system. And then sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? The sympathetic response of the autonomic nervous system does what? Speed stuff up. Can't go to Vegas with you. Parasympathetic slows it down. There you go. And this system is responsible for the fundamental functions as well as higher uh, level activities. What is the three layer membrane that surrounds the central nervous system? What are the three layers of the meninges? Duramater, arachnoid, piamater. What's the name of that space that's right below the arachnoid? Subarachnoid space. And what is produced and reabsorbed in the Subarachnoid space. What's another name for the subarachnoid space? The ventricles of the brain. There you go. How smart. The brain is the body's computer. It controls breathing, speech. What part of the brain controls your ability to speak? Mmm, ain't right. Huh? It is not. What part? 
No, it's not the cerebellum. Which part? Huh? Left side. The left side of your brain controls your ability to speak. That's a fact. So, if someone has something go on with the left side of the brain, let's say they have a cerebrovascular accident on the left side of the left hemisphere, what will they probably not be able to do? Speak at all, right? They won't have function of the right side of their body because it's opposite, right? Right. And different parts of the brain does perform different functions. Somebody said the frontal lobe. What does the frontal lobe control? You know, like your personality. Personalities, higher learning. Motor cortex is there. Yeah. What did you say? Primary motor cortex. Memory. The motor is, is memory. I think the, you're looking at the cerebellum. No, motor cortex is movement. Oh, you're not talking about the coordination. Okay, all right. The brain is the body's computer. It controls all those things. Thoughts, memories, desires, wants reside in the brain. Look there. What are three parts of the brain stem? The medulla, oblongatum, the pons, and the midbrain. And what does the brain stem control? Basic, Basic life functions. Your breathing, blood pressure. It controls your pupils also, even though that's not a same thing. Somewhat affects pulse rate. So tell me this then. If the brain stem controls your breathing and you overdose on a central nervous system depressant, what's going to happen to your breathing? Uh, narcotics, right? Opioids. Cerebellum controls muscle and body coordination. It's the little brain, which is posterior in the cranial vault and posterior to the brain stem. I gave you another little name for the cerebellum. What did I tell you it was called? Athlete's brain. Because it controls that muscular coordination and things of that nature. <coughs> then you've got the cerebrum, which is the gray matter, so to speak. Largest part of the brain. The right and left hemispheres. Front controls emotion and thought, that higher learning, things of that nature. The middle controls touch and movement, and the back processes light through the, through the eyes, right? Messages sent to and from the brain travel through nerves, of course, and you have 12 cranial nerves that run directly from the brain to the parts of the head. Who remembers your 12 cranial nerves and what they do? <clears throat> What's the first pair? You know that for a fact? Which one is it? One's the eyes, one's the nose. You looking at it? <laughs> All right, so what's the second pair? 
Optic. Third. Sir? Ocular motor. Yeah, the cranial nerves. If you obviously are a little rusty on those, I would go back over them. Sure would. And the spinal cord, of course, exits, exits the brain or cranial vault through the foramen magnum. And which bone is the foramen magnum in? Which bone of the skull? The what? Uh, that's C1, C2 in your vertebrae. Not the cribbled hole. Mm -mm. and magnum, what is that? That's the big hole. All right. Now, it's a hole, right? A hole kind of looks like that. And that's the brain, the spinal cord passes through it. That also looks like an O, right? It's the occipital bone. O-C-C-I-P-I-T-A-L. Well, you got to speak louder. I didn't hear you. The foramen magnum is a naturally occurring hole that the spinal cord passes through, and it is in the foramen magnum. That is a fact. Lord, that's bad. And you got a calendar invite at this time. All right. At each vertebrae in the neck and back, two spinal nerves break, branch out. And really what you need to understand, as long as you comprehend the fact that you've got sensory nerves and you've got motor function nerves that comprise these peripheral nerves, okay? Your sense of touch or your sense of pressure, heat, cold, or whatever. Sensory nerves detect those feelings or those impulses, send them to the spine, up the ascending, tra ascending track of the spinal cord is processed and deciphered in the brain and it, the signal comes back down the descending track of the spinal cord back out through the motor nerves and that allows you or causes you to move away or do whatever you need to do in, in reaction to that feeling or temperature does that make sense motor nerves help you move Sensory nerves feel. Even I can figure that one out. All right, the neurons. What is a neuron? It's the cell of the brain. It's a nerve cell, pretty much, right? That's right. And complex activity of the brain is made possible by the synapses. Synapses is something slightly different, though. What is a synapse, Cameron? What does it really connect? It connects, it connects to the, uh, what are they called? The, little, the axon to the dendrites? Yeah, that that's correct. The dendrites? But they don't really connect though, right? Imagine this is a nerve, okay? This whole white section here, it's a nerve. And it's made up of all these neurons, okay? And as the impulse, electrical impulse travels down from the neuron, down the axon into the dendrites, there's a little bit of a space between those dendrites and the dendrites of the next neuron. Y'all tracking? Basically, the impulse will just kind of arc over to that dendrite, but they're, they're not actually connected. But that's how a nervous impulse travels down a nerve or anything else. 
up and down the spinal cord, what have you. And that's about what you need to know about axons and dendrites as it applies to being an EMT. And that little area is called a synapse. And without those chemical neurotransmitters, that impulse will not move properly. Alright, tell you what, before we get to talking about stroke, y'all stretch yourself and I'll... Alright. We ready? Alright. Stroke is a common and potentially treatable disease, condition, whatever. What causes strokes? What causes the blockage? Bad eating. Whole bunch of them. Sedentary lifestyles. Cigarette smoking. All those things, right? Um, build up a plaque and cholesterol inside of your vessels, right? Alright, and what's something else that might, well I hadn't even talked about those types of strokes yet, but just anyhow, it's common, it happens pretty regularly, and it is potentially treatable. Like, uh, like Perry was telling us, either they push that TPA or that out to place, dissolve the clot, or they can literally go in and grab the clot and pull it out for that particular type of stroke, alright? You might be looking at brain infections, tumors, again, seizures, altered mental status, headaches. So, if you dispatch to somebody having a headache, you think that's a true emergency? Could be. Could be. They could pass away before you get there, right? Or, maybe it's a headache. How are you going to know? In the field, you really don't. So, anyhow. <clears throat> Just a regular headache is not a medical emergency in and of itself. Tension headaches are the most common, caused by muscle contractions in the head and the neck. The migraines, what causes migraines? More tension. Blood vessels, Dilation of the blood vessels, pretty much. Okay. Um, but again, the tension headaches are attributed to stress. The pain is usually a squeezing or a dull or an ache. Migraine headaches are thought to be caused by changes in the blood vessel size at the base of the brain. Patients may experience an aura and unilateral focused pain that spreads over time, usually a pounding, throbbing, or pulsating pain. Why do you think it's described as pulsating? What, what's that pulse? That's the heartbeat. That's the blood going through those now enlarged vessels, right? <clears throat> Nausea, vomiting, photophobia also occur. As it pertains to a migraine headache, what's photophobia? Real extreme sensitivity to light, right? They're not afraid of the light. It just hurts. 
Migraines can last for several days at a time. Cluster headaches, they are rare. But again, they may last for several days, then stop entirely. A lot of times, and if registry's gonna ask you a question about headaches, this is probably what they're gonna say to you. Give you a scenario where the pain starts around one eye, okay? Those are cluster headaches. Starts around one eye, then spreads. Why do you think these people are anxious? Because they hurt, right? They hurt. Sinus headaches, we've all had one of those at least once in our life, I'm sure. Caused by pressure buildup in the sinus cavities. Alright, strokes. Cerebrovascular accidents or CVAs, that is an interruption of blood flow to the brain. And understand this too, all the contributing factors, the things that, bless you, that might cause you to have a stroke are the very same things that might cause you to have a heart attack. And I think I've told you before too, think about a stroke as a heart attack of the brain. Think about a heart attack pretty much as a stroke of the heart because it's the same thing. There's an interruption of blood flow to the brain or to the heart, depending on which one we're talking about. Uh, and again, they become ischemic and then eventually will infarct if the uh, oxygen flow is not returned in a timely fashion. Dead cells are called infarcted cells. Once the brain cells die, it's done, right? It's not coming back. <clears throat> An interruption of the cerebral blood flow may result from a thrombus, which is that ischemic stroke. It could be that, that plaque that we talked about, or it could be a blood clot that gets hung up in a vessel, okay? Ischemic stroke, it could be a rupture, an arterial rupture. That's a hemorrhagic stroke. Ischemic strokes and hemorrhagic strokes. Which one are mo the most common? Ischemic. What percentage? 80% 80. 80 of strokes are ischemic in nature. But now they have, they have slightly different signs and symptoms, so you should be able to tell the difference in the field. But ultimately, a stroke's a stroke, and you need to get to a stroke center, right? Here's a little picture. Blood flow, then here comes a clot. It starts to build up. It's going to clot up eventually, trust me. See, the platelets are clumping together now. It's a long little illustration. Oh, it, no, that one's the one that's blocked. No, that one ruptured. There you go. I understand now. Because if you read ischemic, and hemorrhagic, that one clogs up so all the cells downstream on this side are not going to get oxygenated blood. That's a rupture. That's a hemorrhagic stroke. Sometimes if you just read. Alright, ischemic strokes result from an embolism or thrombus. Arthrosclerosis in the blood vessels is often the cause plaque forms inside the walls of the blood vessels and may obstruct the blood flow or again it may come from another part of the body primarily the lower extremities and it just gets hung up in the brain in one of those cerebral arteries 
and disrupts the blood flow. Enough said on that. Is anybody that doesn't understand the difference between ischemic stroke and a hemorrhagic stroke? Is anybody that doesn't know which one is the most common? Okay. Says that uh, it may also occur when uh, atherosclerotic plaque. It doesn't have to be a clot. It could be that plaque. Anything that blocks that artery. Patients often have dramatic symptoms. What are the signs and symptoms of an ischemic stroke? Somebody tell me. Droopage of one side of the face. Or body. Arm drift. Possibly can't talk. Okay. <clears throat> Loss of movement on the opposite side of the body. Uh, uh, movement and sensations. They may not. They may not be able to move it. They may not feel it. It may even, if the vessel that is blocked is large enough, they may even have what's called neglect of that side. They may literally not even understand that they have that side of their body anymore. And it gets a little weird. But if you're standing over here and they've got a pretty significant artery blocked on the left side of their brain, they don't even see you standing right there. They don't even know you're there. They don't know that they've got that side of their body. It's called right-sided neglect, left-sided neglect, whichever side it happens to be on, okay? Loss of movement on the opposite side of the body, confusion, possibly inability to speak if the, if the stroke is where? On the left side. What's the medical name or medical word for inability to speak? So everybody's going to write down. The medical prefix A or AN means without, right? A. Aphasia with an S. Aphasia. A lot of times if someone's had a stroke too, you'll, you'll see or kind of gauge or measure their ability to swallow as well because you're trying to figure out their ability to protect their own airway and things of that nature, right? And there's some other things that doctors are looking at, but as far as you're concerned, are they going to be able to protect that airway? If someone can't swallow, that is aphagia with a G. Aphasia, they can't do what? Aphagia, they can't do what? Swallow. All right, well, what if they have difficulty speaking, but they can speak? That is dysphasia. What if they have difficulty in swallowing, but they can swallow? Dysphagia. What if they look at you and are just speaking literal gibberish? It, it isn't words, but you can tell they're looking at you and they're confused about why you don't understand them. Because in their mind, they're speaking like they've spoke their whole life but it may literally be bleh, bleh, bleh. like a baby talks? Yeah, something like that. That's a real thing too. There's a name for that. 
Don't ask me to explain this one because I can't, but I'm, what I'm telling you is true. It's called dysarthria. D-Y-S-A-R-A-R-T-H-R-I-A. Dysarthria. Has incomprehensible words. It's literally just like gibberish. But they're looking at you saying it like you're supposed to understand. Because to them, they're speaking normally. So, aphasia is what? Aphagia? Dysarthria? Dysphasia? Dysphasia. There you go. Ischemic strokes, continuing with that. Um, again, it does. it's either that, that, that clot or it's that piece of plaque. It's something that's broken free, blocked up that cerebral artery. Um, if, um, and again, your primary decision that you've got to make is, where are you going to transport them to? If they're having a stroke and you take them to local hospital A that isn't, doesn't have any type of stroke designation, is that a good thing? No. Time equals tissue. That's a fact. They're going to sit there and brain cells are going to die until they satisfy the COBRA laws and MTALA laws, which say they can't just transfer you straight out. They've got to run this test and this test and try to stabilize you and do some other things because the laws come about a lot of times for good reasons, but sometimes they have negative consequences. The MTALA laws pretty much say, as soon as the patient's on their property, you belong to that hospital and they're responsible for you, as it applies to us and what we do. The laws say other things. But the COBRA laws were passed because back in the day, if you came to a hospital and you needed a bunch of stuff done, but you didn't have insurance, what might that hospital do? Ship you out to some other hospital. There you go. But these laws prevent them from doing that. They have to at least stabilize you, but in reality, that's doing you more harm than good. But uh, so that, that's an unintended negative consequence of, of the uh, COBRA laws. So make the wise choice to begin with. Take them to a, uh, follow your protocols but take them to either a primary or a comprehensive stroke center, depending on, uh, and if you're not sure where to go, what might you do? Medical control, call and ask the doctor, that's right. All right, hemorrhagic strokes result from bleeding inside of the brain, typically when a cerebral artery ruptures. Ischemic stroke, all right, let's do this. What do we say the sign? Look in your book. What are the signs and symptoms of a hemorrhage, excuse me, an ischemic stroke? Difficulty 
Okay. Loss so, do what? Loss of movement on opposite side of the body. And movement and sensation, right? Confusion. Does it say anything about the pupils? Does it say anything about the rate of onset? How long it might take for these symptoms to fully develop? Well, just know when you're comparing one to the other, ischemic strokes will have a little bit of a slower onset of signs and symptoms, okay? Hemorrhagic strokes. What are the signs and symptoms of a hemorrhagic stroke? Hypertension. Huh? Hypertension? That could have caused it in the first place, yep. What else? Worst headache I've ever had in my life is what they might say. Worst headache I've ever had in my life. What else? Loss of consciousness. Rapid loss of consciousness. It should say nausea vomiting more so with that one as well projectile vomiting who's who's ever seen that there's a reason why it's called projectile vomiting right whoosh I mean they they, they no arch to it or nothing it's zoof, right more of a sudden onset of signs and symptoms uh, worst headache I've ever had in my life Nausea, vomiting, projectile usually, and then a rapid loss of consciousness. Which one's most common? Alright, so why as, as a skilled medical professional what's one of the, you come up on the scene of a potential stroke, what's Something. What's a very important fact that you need to establish pretty quickly? What's something you need to know pretty quickly? Sorry. Okay, that's important. But the most important thing you need to find out would be when the onset of signs and symptoms started. When did the signs and symptoms first start? Now, why? Why is that important? Times tissue, that's true. I'm never going to say that's wrong. But there's another reason, too. The amount of time. Because it's you said that the onset sometimes take a little bit longer to present themselves. So it yeah. could have been already in that process or set in before you see the onset. Okay, that's true. You have until the cells die? Begin, they begin to die in six to ten minutes. But here's what you need to know. It may dictate the type of treatment you're eligible for. 
there's a, and write this down because I think this is probably what's still in your book and what will be on your test. But strokes that are within a three-hour window are eligible for some of that TPA. You can get that clot-busting drug and you can get that quicker than going and actually getting the uh, thrombectomy, basically thrombectomy where they go in there and pull the clot out. Well, out of place or just TPA? Little T, big P, little A, TPA. That's for Uh-huh. Now, in reality, they're pushing that three-hour window out. Some places are saying six hours. Some places are even saying closer to eight hours. Um, but just know this. Wake-up strokes. If they went to bed normal, then they woke up with the stroke. They're, they're not eligible for some of them that, that out to place or TPA. They'll probably have to go straight to a comprehensive center and they may not be able to do much for them. Once the cells are dead, they're dead, right? So. And again, just like a heart attack, the severity of a stroke depends on the location and size of the vessel especially the ruptured ones. And if you're bleeding inside the brain, what's eventually going to build up? ICP. That's correct. People who are at a high risk for a hemorrhagic stroke are those with long-term uncontrolled hypertension. Just too much pressure and eventually pops. An aneurysm is a swelling or enlargement of an artery due to a, the weakening of the arterial wall. And again, you're bleeding in the cranial vault, right? What's going to build up? Pressure. Pressure. All right. Signs and symptoms of a hemorrhagic stroke, a sudden onset of a severe headache. I guess I didn't put that, and y'all need to. I told you that this was a lot, has a more rapid onset than ischemic. But I guess... Uh, a sudden severe headache worst they've ever had in their life then they go then they start vomiting and go unconscious when hemorrhagic stroke occurs in an otherwise healthy young person it is likely caused by a berry aneurysm when a hemorrhagic stroke occurs in an otherwise healthy young person it is likely a berry, B-E-R-R-Y, aneurysm. And why do you need to know that? To having an aneurysm, it's an aneurysm, right? Why do you need to know that the otherwise healthy young person who develops these, these signs and symptoms of bleeding in the cranial vault, why do you need to know that's probably a berry aneurysm? In an otherwise healthy young person. Don't treat it the same way, right? Because it might be on your test. That's why you need to know that an otherwise healthy young person, it's probably a berry aneurysm. Have I said that enough yet? Yeah. All right. As the intracranial pressure rises, blood available to the brain decreases. Why? Who can critically think for me? 
as the pressure in the cranial vault increases, the blood supply to the brain decreases. Why? Huh? It's decreased to all of the brain, not just downstream. Is it because you got so much pressure that it can no longer take in? It can't swell out, but so far, right? right. Then it starts to swell in, and it compresses all of those arteries in the brain. And blood can't flow through it. So what does the body try to do to compensate for that? What was you saying, Perry? So that increases blood pressure, right? Yes, increases bleeding. Does everybody have all this? All right, so now you've got this pressure building in the cranial vault. Vessels start to get smaller. The body reacts to that. Of course, now we've got to release some more epinephrine to increase the inotropic and uh, chronotropic properties of the heart. It increases the blood pressure in an effort to force that blood into those now smaller vessels, right? What will the pulse pressure show you if somebody's building intracranial pressure? The pulse pressure. What is the pulse pressure? Okay. So what will happen to the pulse pressure in ICP? Do what, Brad? It widens. A widening of the pulse pressure. ICP. A widening of the pulse pressure. First BP might be 120 over 80. You notice I always start with that one. Okay. The second one might be 130 over 70. You see how it's getting wider, right? right. Third one might be 142 over 68. It's getting wider, a widening of the pulse pressure. Somebody look in your book or goggle it, I don't care. No, no, wrong one. No, you know what though? Mm -hmm. Don't you tell me what the Bex triad is? And I want you to tell me what the Cushing's triad or the Cushing's reflex is sometimes called. One of these apply to increased ICP. One of them applies to the pericardial tamponade. Look them up. Tell me which one's which. And also tell me what type of shock will a pericardial tamponade cause. Cushing's or Cushing's. Oh, you can't read? No. I can't write either. No, you're good. I, I just it's Cushing's. Man. It's all right. These, my hand ain't too big. <laughs> Beck's triad, Cushing's triad. Cushing's triad is a combination of increased blood pressure, decreased heart rate, and irregular respiration. All right, hold up. Okay. So... Cushing's triad, it's called a triad because there's three signs and symptoms, right? Three signs. The first one was what? Uh, increased blood pressure. Increased BP because it's trying to force blood into those now smaller vessels, right? But systolic is rising faster than diastolic, so you have a widening of the pulse pressure. What was the second one? Um, decreased heart rate. Decreased pulse rate. And the third one? 
regular respiration. You might be looking at um, chain Stokes respirations. You might be looking at Biot's respirations. Whatever, but irregular respirations. Increased BP, decreased pulse, irregular respirations. Cushing's triad, and that is in reaction or a result to increased ICP. So what are the three parts that make up Beck's triad? Pulse pressure. What about pulse pressure? Narrowing pulse pressure. Narrowing pulse pressure. Neck vein distension. JVD. Muffled heart tones. Muffled heart tones. Good enough. So with the BP, this increased BP, I'll, for the Cushing's triad, I would also put in there widening pulse pressure. Beck's triad, Cushing's triad. Increased pressure in the head, increased pressure on the heart. We good? What was number two for the Beck's triad? JVD. Jugular venous or venous distension or neck vein distension, same thing, doesn't matter. Whatever you want to put. Yeah, irregular resp uh, respiratory patterns. Might, like I said, might be Shane Stokes, could be Biot's respirations. Just is not normal. Any questions? Stretch yourself for a second. Alright, so now I like to use, when we're talking about the, the brain and the heart, and I told you like a stroke is like a heart attack of the brain, brain, uh, and vice versa. Transient ischemic attacks. That is um, where one or two things, either the cerebral artery will spasm a little bit and temporarily reduce blood flow to a part of the brain, so they'll manifest signs and symptoms of a stroke. It'll look like they're having a stroke. But then a few minutes later, the vessel relaxes, blood flow returns, signs and symptoms go away. Or it's a clot. It's an actual stroke, kind of like, and then, but either the body kind of eliminates the clot on its own, or eventually it breaks free and passes on down the vessel, and so then the signs and symptoms of a stroke go away in that way as well. Whenever you see the word transient, what does that put you in the mind of? A transient type person kind of comes and goes, right? A lot of moving around. So a transient ischemic attack or TIA is to a stroke like blank is to a heart attack. Who can fill in the blank? Because all chest pain in the field to you is a what? Until proven. What's the only, what, how do you definitively, definitively prove a heart attack? Which one was it? Troponin. Troponin, right. But what's something that kind of looks like a heart attack but may self-resolve if they rest or 
Did you say gas? <laughs> I guess if the gas is bad enough, it could cause your chest to hurt. But what I'm talking about is an angina, remember? They rest, maybe take a nitro, the pain gets better. It goes away or can even self-resolve just by rest. So a TIA is to a stroke like an angina is to a heart attack. Does that make sense? All right. How will you know the difference in the field between a stroke and a TIA? You will not. If they self-resolve in route to the hospital or something, you look at them and say, hey, we fixed you. Count yourself lucky. But also, a TIA is an emergency because it's kind of like a warning sign, right? Just like the pain of an angina. If, if, you, if you have chest pain upon exertion, if you don't change your eating habits, you don't change your exercise habits, you don't go to a doctor or whatever, that, that plaque is going to get thicker and thicker and thicker and eventually it's going to be a full-blown heart attack, right? But TIAs a lot of times will kind of point you to the fact that you're going to have a stroke if you don't change something. It's kind of like, a, I guess, tremors are to an earthquake, so to speak. Y'all like these analogies? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's what I do. Signs and symptoms of a stroke, left hemisphere problems. What's the first thing listed if the stroke's in the left hemisphere? Aphasia. Does that mean just simply that they can't speak? Or could it mean a couple things? They either can't speak or maybe they can't understand what you're saying. You're speaking plain English to them, but they're looking at you like you got three heads because they can't understand the words that you're saying. Okay? And then paralysis, um, inability to move or feel the right side of their body. Right hemisphere problems, paralysis on the left side of the body, and dysarthria. What's that? Yeah, it, it, I think your book does just call it slurred speech, but it really goes beyond that. Slurred speech is just that. That's kind of like dysphasia. They struggle and they're talking really slow and they may even slur a little bit, but you can understand what they're saying. Neglect. We talked about that. Patients oblivious to the problem. They don't even know they got that side of their body. They don't even know you're standing over there and they're wondering why you're in their house. They just don't know. They don't understand. Don't comprehend. They can neglect certain parts of the vision, of their vision as well. That's why I was telling you if, if it's on the right side and it's bad enough and you're standing right there on the left, they're not even going to see you. They don't know you're there. So what's a problem if the patient doesn't understand there's a problem? So they're going to, you think they're going to call for help right away? No. And I told you there's that three-hour window, right, to where you could get treatments and you'll have better long-term outcomes. Back in the day, if somebody rolled into the ER having a stroke, you know what they did for them? 
pushed him in the corner and let's see how bad it gets. That's a reality. They didn't do nothing for you but watched you. So now they've got these treatments that they can do, but that three-hour window, again, for test-taking purposes, three, but in reality, six or eight, depending on your, your local hospital. So that's why when you get on the scene and you think it's a possible stroke, what's one of the very first things you need to ask? What's the onset of signs and symptoms? And the hospital's going to want to know that. You usually, or you probably, have to call a stroke alert. You probably have a special phone number. Now, you pick up the radio and you call and you're given a radio report, but there's a probably a particular number, 770-400-1200 is Noonan's stroke alert number, but you call them on the phone and tell them. And that's one of the first things they're going to want to know. Onset of signs and symptoms. But it's called last known well time. Last known well time. Bleeding in the brain is intracerebral hemorrhage. Same thing. And why might it present with hypertension? Compensating for what? Lack of blood pressure? Increased volume. Increased volume? There ain't but one leg of that three-legged stool left, Perry. Uh, <laughs> okay. Why does bleeding in the brain, why might it present with hypertension? Anybody? Perry took two stabs at it. Huh? Well, they're not, yes, they're, they're not constricting on their own, but the pressure's being exerted on it, so now they're smaller, right? Volume remains the same, it's smaller, and plus it's trying to force blood into them smaller vessels. So that's the hypertension. That's one-third of Cushing's triad, right? Yeah. But do not treat high blood pressure and stroke patients in the field. Listen. Even when you go get your paramedic, you're not going to be treating high blood pressure in the field anyhow. Well, you might, but anyhow, that's beyond your scope of practice anyhow. But they're saying don't reduce the blood pressure because if a paramedic or somebody gives them something to reduce blood pressure, like cardizem or something like that, why would that be a problem in this patient? You, you have stopped the cerebral perfusion, right? What little oxygen they were getting to their brain, you just stopped it. Conditions that may mimic a stroke. Things that mimic a stroke. Hypoglycemia. How in the world is low blood sugar going to mimic a stroke? They do. That's a fact. That could be correct. But someone with hypoglycemia can literally develop unilateral 
paralysis. They can't move one side of their body just like a stroke would. I'm sorry? Slurred speech. Slurred speech. Um, it says, of course, check the blood glucose level. Find out if the patient is diabetic. I've told you numerous times, getting your sample history is, is going to clue you to what's going on this time, right? Because you can't overlook the obvious a lot of times. But that, what is something that a stroke might produce that hypoglycemia can't produce? Mm-hmm. Maybe, but that we're not. I'm talking about an ischemic stroke. Okay, but as far as signs and symptoms, low blood sugar can't make pupil sizes change, right? But a stroke can, right? If there's a stroke on the left side of the brain, what's going to happen to the right pupil? If it's an ischemic stroke, it's going to dilate. It's going to be opposite of the stroke, too, right? The side that they can't used properly or can't feel, that pupil may, be, may get a little bit larger. Hypoglycemia can't do that. At what point the hypoglycemia would they, I guess, uh, experience partial paralysis? It, it, it depends on the person and it depends on how low their blood sugar is. It's, there's not a definitive answer to that, but if they presenting like that, I mean, they may even have that dysarthria. They may be speaking to you in gibberish, unable to move one side of the body. Check the blood sugar. If it's low, of course, now call medical control. Call the doctor and ask because there's a potential problem. If they were to have had a hemorrhagic stroke, and I know we haven't gotten to this yet, but sugar, if it leaks out of the vessel, and gets in contact with tissue, it causes necrosis. It causes that tissue to rot. So now if they're bleeding in their brain and you give them sugar, you put the old Vulcan mind melt on them, right? So if you're not sure, call medical control. Subdural or epidural bleeding. Subdural, I want you to think about the meningeal layers and tell me where do you think you're bleeding if you have a subdural bleed? Below the duramater. Where are you bleeding if you're bleeding if you have an epidural bleed? Which one will kill you? Both of them. <laughs> Which one's going to kill you the fastest? Epidural. Why the epidural? Because you're bleeding very rapidly. Why? I don't know that. Man, you was doing so good. Which vessels bleed faster? Veins or arteries? The epidural bleed is typically... Uh, I don't even know if it's on this slide. Yeah, it's usually because... The middle meningeal artery has been damaged. The middle meningeal artery is leaking, and that's typically what causes an epidural bleed. The middle meningeal artery 
causes an epidural bleed. That was three times, Jesus. I said that three times. Now, the subdural, you might be talking about uh, uh, veins. If, if it is an artery, it's probably a little bit smaller of an artery, smaller of an artery. But epidural bleed is usually caused by the middle meningeal artery. Seizures involve sudden erratic firing of the neurons and patients with epilepsy commonly have seizures. How many of y'all have never witnessed somebody having a seizure? Everybody in this room has seen somebody. I ain't talking about on TV. Everybody in the room has witnessed a full-blown seizure. Okay, all right. Are there different types of seizures? What did we used to call, well, back in the day they'd call them like petite mall, grand mall. Y'all have heard those terms before? Now they probably prefer absent seizures. That's just kind of like where the patient doesn't have that typical tonic-clonic type jerking actions. It's just they kind of go away for a few seconds. They just kind of space out and then they'll come back. Um, the full-blown, what used to be called grand mal seizures, they call uh, generalized seizures now, okay? That is that full-blown, they get this aura about them. They know a seizure's about to happen. It might be that they see certain colors. There may be halos around everybody, or they get a certain taste or a certain smell. They know it's coming. That's their aura, A-U-R-A. Then they'll get stiff as a board, and then they'll start that tonic-clonic type. All their muscles violently contracting, relaxing, contracting, relaxing, contracting, relaxing. What can they not do if all of their muscles are contracting at the same time and all of their muscles are relaxing at the same time? Do I? They ain't pulling in that 500 cc's, right? They're not breathing. So if that Roman fellow, status epilecticus, shows up, what is status epilecticus? That's a prolonged or more severe seizure over extended periods of time, right? Why is that a problem? Sure enough. Because that's an extended period of time where they're not breathing. You need to breathe for them, right? All right. What happens after they've had that generalized tonic-clonic type or grand mal seizure once the seizure stops? Do you think they've expelled a lot of energy? They burn off a lot of sugar and oxygen? If they're not just completely unconscious, they're probably unconscious and snoring. It's called the postictal state. They're just, they've worn out themselves, they burn up their sugar, burn up their oxygen. So what do you do you think something important you need to do for them you think give them oxygen right if their sugar is low enough even though they're not diabetic you may give them some sugar too but for right now give them oxygen
There's another type of seizure that might cause somebody just to have a jerky motion in, in one part of their body. They never lose consciousness. It might be their arm or something. They might just start jerking. Their arm might just start jerking. It'll do that for a few minutes and then it'll stop. No, not Tourette's. Because <laughs> they didn't say no cuss words while they were doing it. But just, maybe it's the arm, maybe it's their leg. Just one part of their body starts that jerking motion, then it stops. What is that called? Okay. Simple. Ooh, there's that puberty. There's that puberty again. Simple partial seizures. Does your book tell you the other name of it? Or named after a motor hmm. No, not complex usually is when when you have that one part of the body that, that's jerking and they lose consciousness. Their loss of consciousness usually differentiates between simple and complex. But those simple uh, partial seizures, yeah, but I, I'm, there's a president of the United States that had them. So now it's sometimes called after him. Washington. Jacksonian. Jacksonian seizures. Because Andrew Jackson had them. Jacksonian seizures. That might be on your test. Alright. And here we go. Steps of the tonic-clonic seizure. The generalized seizure. We talked about the aura, which is a sensation. A go unconscious. Body-wide rigidity. And then you got that hypertonic phase and then the clonic jerking. Listen, if someone's having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, what are you going to do for them? Clear, make sure they don't... You sure you don't want to hold them down or something? No. No. It ain't a ride at Six Flags. Don't jump on. <laughs> People will do that. They're not going to swallow their tongue, so don't put a spoon in their mouth. You don't do none of that. They might bite their tongue. That's fact. Move the furniture. Move things away from them. And if you can put a pillow under their head or something so they're not beating their head on the floor, that might be a good thing. But don't restrict their movement. Move things away from them. And you want to concentrate on what? Bingo. And what would we say the post-tictal stage was? Yeah. And what's the best thing you could do for them to help bring them around? Give them some O's, right? Absent seizure. Again, um, they just kind of go away for a little while and then they come back. What do we used to call absent seizures? Petite mall. Simple partial seizures involve movement or sensations of one part of the body. Um, maybe altered sensations. Who used to have them? Complex partial seizures. 
That's when their levels of consciousness start to get affected. But it's still that one part of the body. What's that Roman guy? Status epilepticus. Seizures lasting more than four or five minutes. Just prolonged seizures. And again, the problem there is they're, they're, they don't have that tidal volume they need, right? They're not creating those pressure gradients that allow air to rush into the lungs. And if someone has idiopathic seizures, what does that mean? They, well, there's a reason, they just don't know what it is. Yeah. What's a febrile seizure? Febrile. Sudden high fevers. Partially in infants and small children. The first word of that is key. Sudden high fever. Because you could have one child that has a fever of 104 and never sees. And you can have another child that's got a fever of 102. Season to beat the band. It is how fast the temperature rises that causes the seizure, not the actual temperature. Does that make sense? If it spikes real quick, they might very well seize. What's real quick? You're talking about like 30 minutes? Like not long, no, quicker. No, 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 quicker than that. It would probably have to, I would say, and this is just my best guess, it might shoot up in about 10 minutes or so. But that ain't exact either. All right. Goal of pre-hospital care when it comes to a seizure is somebody needs to stop the seizure. A paramedic can give medications that will break the seizures. If you have a febrile or a child has a febrile seizure, what might you do? Cool them down is what you want to focus on right now. You just take a wet towel, drape it around the child, but you want to be very careful. And you want that, you want that to be what the temperature of that water to be what they call tepid water, right? Just not really hot, not really cold, but it's wet, okay? Wrap it around the child. But what do you need to be careful of when you do that? When you start cooling the child, what do you want to watch for? Huh? Well, always, but because if you cool them too fast, what will the child start to do? Shiver. And when they shiver, what happens to their body temperature? There you go. Will an infant shiver? They don't have the ability, do they? Again. And let me ask you this. Well, will hypoglycemia cause seizures? Will seizures cause hypoglycemia? Yeah. Yes. Because yes. yes. all that extra, oh, yeah, they burn it up. So there you go again. It's the whole chicken or egg thing, right? So how are you going to tell the difference typically? Sample history. 
do they have epilepsy? Well, yeah. Well, why do you think their blood sugar is low then? Because they seized. Do they have a history of diabetes? Well, yeah. Then why do you think they seized? Because their blood sugar got low. Right? Your sample history will, t will point you in the right direction. Nine times out of ten. <laughs> yep, yep. Dilantin, Dilantin, phenobarbital, there's a bunch of different seizure medications that you might get. So, if someone's on seizure medicines and you get dispatched to them for having a seizure, what's well, one of the first things you want to kind of figure out? Do they have their medicine or are they compliant with their medicine, right? Because that paints a different picture. If someone has a seizure disorder that takes phenobarbital, whatever, and you get there and they're seizing or they just finished having the seizure and the family says or the patient's awake and talking to you, whatever, and you find out that they may or may not have take their medicine like they're supposed to. So why do you think they might have seized them? Because those medication levels got out of whack, right? And they can't control it. That's scenario A. Well, scenario B, they're absolutely compliant with their meds. They take it like they're supposed to. They ain't had a seizure in five years. That tells you something's changed, right? That paints a different picture. They both should go to the hospital because any patient you ever go to needs to go to the hospital and that needs to be your mind frame you get in trouble for the ones that you leave behind the ones you take to the hospital you can prove you did something to help them right so both of them need to go to the hospital but which one do you think is really more critical that they go to the hospital the the there you go because something's different there's a idiopathic those are febrile and what causes them to re actually seize? Yeah. Yep. Again, if somebody is seizing following a traumatic event, a car wreck, you get to the car, you pull up, and they're sitting there seizing windshield spider webbed you know that pressure is building up right they're probably bleeding in, in the head sometimes a person will become incontinent right before they start the whole tonic clonic thing what does that mean yep postictal altered mental status aside from strokes and seizures is the most common neurologic emergency they may be completely unresponsive, or maybe they're responsive, but just kind of confused. That's that the whole repetitive question thing. I mean, they would literally may look at you and say, what happened? Where am I at? Well, you're in a car wreck. You're on 34 East. Okay, what happened? Where am I at? I mean, just that, that repetitive. I mean, it's almost like the first time you hear it, you'll almost think, man, he's messing with me. They're really not. Hypoglycemia, hypoxemia, intoxication, drug overdose, 
head injuries, brain infections, body temperature abnormalities. If somebody spikes a really high, an adult primarily spikes a really high fever, do you think they'll hallucinate sometimes? Absolutely. They'll talk some crazy stuff to you. Hypoglycemia patients uh, may have symptoms that mimic strokes or seizures. We've already talked about that, right? Hemiparesis. What does that word mean? All right, again, your, your sample history and taking your blood glucose readings is going to tell you that. Don't give them anything by mouth with decreased LOC. Why? Why should you never give somebody by mouth if their, their levels of consciousness are decreased? Because they can't protect their own airway, right? Yep. Alright. A patient with an altered mental status may be combative and refuse treatment or transport. Can someone who has an altered mental status refuse treatment or transport? No. Who can refuse treatment or transport? I need three words. Conscious, adult. Conscious, competent, adult. They may appear intoxicated or not, but if they're altered, they cannot refuse psychological problems could cause the altered mental status infections if someone has an infection to the point that it's causing an altered mental status what will come along with that that fever we were talking about a minute ago drug overdoses poisonings again it depends on you know, what they, how they present is going to depend on what they've overdosed on, obviously. What's syncope? Passed out. Could be problems with cardiac rhythm, conduction. So passing out may be potentially life-threatening or maybe it's not, right? Maybe they got some bad news. Maybe they, uh, uh, saw something very unpleasant to them or whatever. Or it could be myocardial infarction. Why is it that someone having a heart attack might pass out? Pain. Okay. What's, what's another reason? The volume of blood. Okay. What about it? not blocked but it's reduced maybe the, there's enough damage to that heart muscle that the heart can't pump the blood against gravity right maybe this the brain's not adequately perfused because of the now damaged pump they pass out that's why if I haven't told you this already anytime you run a call on an elderly patient who fell from a standing position you need to rule out underlying cardiac causes every time because it's not that uncommon 
Now, like I think I've, I might have told you all this because I said if you get there and the rug's all wadded up underneath their feet or if there's one of them yip-yappy little dogs running around and they tripped on the dog or something, maybe it's not cardiac. But what have you hurt if you put them on a cardiac monitor? You always explain why you did something, right? <clears throat> Patient assessment, seeing size up is always the same, right? What's your primary assessment? After you do your ABCs, you make a decision. If they're critical or a primary patient, you're off the scene how fast? Once you've secured the, the primary assessment, got your sample history, set of vitals, and route to the hospital, you might do what assessment? If, they're if they are priority patient, what type of physical exam will you do on, that, on them? Rapid head to toe. If they're not a priority patient, or if they're not critical, if they're stable, what type of physical exam? Focused on their chief complaint. This ain't hard. All right. Hey, I will tell you this. We ain't talking about this yet, but if someone's had a seizure, scratch, somebody's had a stroke, and they have unilateral hemiparesis, can't move it, maybe even they have neglect, okay? How do you transport, what position do you transport these people in? That's a great answer, but not what I'm looking for this time. You transport them on their affected side. If they can't move or can't feel their right side, put them on a stretcher, right lateral recumbent. Now, why would you do that? Okay, they can't feel it, but if they can't feel it, they can't protect it either, right? That's what your book says. I've never seen it in the real world, okay? Y'all might see it tonight and think I'm crazy. But the, the book says you transport them on their affected side to help protect it because they can't feel it and therefore they can't protect it. All right. What are we looking at here? That's posturing. Usually you're looking at increased ICP. You have decorticate posturing where the hands are pulled in toward the core, if you will. Decorticate flexed like that. Decerebate, arms are extended. Hands may be laterally rotated and the feet are like they're pushing a gas pedal. Decorticate, decerebate. Which one's bad? They're both bad. <laughs> Got you again, G. <laughs> Indicates severe brain dysfunction. Consider this patient to be critical. Absolutely. If you see them posturing, that is not good. Especially if you've got some sort of uh, insult to the head. Not good. Airway breathing, circulation, make a transport decision, get your sample history. Yep, yep, yep. And if they've had a stroke, what do you need to know? Last known well time, that's right. And hopefully it is within what type of window? Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale. If you think someone has had a stroke, this is a test that you can do in the field. 
Okay? You have the patient close their eyes and you grab both of their hands, rotate their hands to where their palms up, and you lift their hands with their eyes closed. And then you let go of their hands. And if one arm starts to drift, they won't realize it because their eyes are closed. But if that hand starts to drift down, that's called arm drift. That's a positive indicator for stroke. Okay? Then you can ask them to smile or show their teeth. Your face should be symmetrical, right? But if they smile and only one side of their face comes up into a smile and the other one just stays normal. Didn't come from the factory like that. <laughs> That's a positive indicator for a stroke. Slurred speech. Now, they say you should ask the patient to say, the sky is blue in Cincinnati. Well, some folks might be concerned about the sky in Cincinnati, right? <laughs> what, what do you always hear them say in reality around here? Can't teach an old dog new tricks. It really doesn't matter what you make them say. Do they slur their speech or not? And again, these are positive indicators for a stroke. The Los Angeles pre-hospital stroke screen adds these other factors in. Um, you get to looking in, but you know, you could do grip strength test as well in conjunction with the Cincinnati. You get them to grab both of your hands at the same time and say, squeeze both of my hands as hard as you can. Now be careful. They might, they might, they might put it on you. But that's really ultimately good as long as they don't break any bones in your hand, right? <laughs> but if they squeeze and there's a discernible difference between their grip strengths, again, that's a potential positive indicator, indicator for a stroke. All right? Glasgow Coma Scale, we already know about that, don't we? What are three things we assign a numerical value to? Eyes, verbal, motor. It's vital signs. What might you find with the uh, blood pressure if they have increased ICP? Widening of the pulse pressure. Pupil size and reactivity changes indicate significant bleeding and pressure on the brain. Which pair of cranial nerves control pupillary changes and responses? Huh? No, which pair of cranial nerves? You know I'm looking for a number, right? Mr. Hughes, what's your list say? Number two. Huh? Number two. Add one. Three. Read number three to us. Uh, I wrote down move eyeballs and upper eyeballs. It, it controls the pupils too. Do, do, do. How often should you reassess? Interventions at the EMT level. If someone is 
Uh, wrong chapter. Scratch it. All right. If someone's had a seizure, what are you going to do? If they're actively having a seizure when you get there, what are you probably looking at? Okay, it's true. But typically, and I guess I'll just throw this out there. Typically, if you get dispatched to someone having a seizure, usually they've stopped seizing before you get there, right? If they're still seizing when you get there, that's that old Roman guy, right? This is a prolonged seizure. All right? So you want to be concerned with the breathing, like Warren says. Um, but if they're still seizing, push things away. Try to put a pillow under them or whatever so they don't bust their head. But don't restrain their movements whatsoever. And for the love of the good Lord, don't put a spoon in their mouth. Stroke patients. What are you going to do for them? Oxygen. How are you going to transport them? On the effective side. Communicate, document. Like I said, call a stroke alert if it's a designated stroke center. Document, communicate, document. Could headaches be a life-threatening problem? Yes. But if they're having one, especially migraine, do not use lights and sirens transporting. Because they may have, obviously loud noises are going to be terrible for them, but that, that photophobia too, dim the lights in the back of the ambulance. We don't do IVs yet, don't worry about that. What's the difference between a CVA and a TIA? How will you know the difference in the field? <laughs> no. Syncopies, what? If they say you should obtain orthostatic vital signs, what are they talking about? Take a set of vital signs with them lying flat, take another set with them setting up, take a third set with them standing. In summary, we said all of that right there. Y'all remember? <laughs>